Okay, this is the pre-roll. That was some nice verbal fry you just did there. Isn't that what that's called? No. Vocal fry. It's not verbal fry. It's vocal fry. <laughs> Ver- verbal fry. Vocal fry. No, that's fry. Not, is that's not fry, is it? Yeah, this, it's, I think it's called vocal fry. I thought vocal fry was the kind no, of... No, uh, I don't want an order uh, of fries. No, I'm kind of hungry. All right, so but let's, let's, get this, let's get this out of the way. People are already hitting stop. <laughs> <laughs> we have a terrific Skip. guest today for, for a terrific conversation, which we already know how it turned out, which was awesome. Yeah, she's great. It's Professor Kate Shaw from the Cardozo Law School. Writing about? Presidential speech beyond the bully pulpit. Yeah, what are we going to, when the president says stuff, what do we do with that? What do courts do with that in particular? Right. How, do we, how do we treat the legal significance of the president's words? And I, I learned a tremendous amount from this paper. I hope we did it justice. I, I got to admit to something, Joe. Oh. I did not. This is, you know, this is our, our health corner. Yes, the health corner time. Health corner. Which health will be corner a, with Christian. Which will just be, as we've said before, an increasingly dominant part of the show. Correct. As we age. And I, I didn't sleep well last night. Oh, I'm sorry. I just, can you tell? Can you tell there's like a weight? What's really cool is that in our 70s, we're going to be able to make <laughs> medical sounds into the microphones and just ask people to sort of compare them to their own medical oh, I, sounds. <laughs> I think it's going to be great. I've been monitoring it. You've already been making those sounds. <laughs> 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 Listeners, this is one thing you can thank me for. I, I edit those out. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I meant creaky joints, and oh. we can we can we can reach further. We can accomplish more in the medical sound category. You think so? I do. You think so? I'm confident. Well, but you didn't sleep well. You, I wouldn't have guessed that. Really? Really? I've got this cold again. It's like Eddie. yeah, the cold. I heard. Yeah, it's like with a year of craziness. I don't. You know? You know what I mean? I do. Okay. I'm trying to... Making it all the more wonderful and amazing that we had such a great conversation with a great guest. Which we're going to get to right away, other than to say, if you want to give us feedback, uh, email us at oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com. That is oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com. That's still, at oral argument, I guess. Is that our Twitter handle? Yeah, yeah we're, at we're, oral argument. we're oral argument on Twitter. Follow us there. We're also on, on the Book of Faces. And, <laughs> the Book of Faces. You know, that makes it sound much more important than it is. Do you know what I... I the was, Book of Faces. You know, it still is in my, in my Slack is the oral argument Slack that I made two years ago now, I think. Uh-huh. Thinking, well, maybe we'll have a Slack. And now, like, all these podcasts have Slack. Yeah. And ours just, I don't, I don't think you wanted to do it. I think it's your fault, Joe. Oh, you what's my fault? <laughs> I'm just trying to push your buttons. I, I made a Slack for the show for, and like, I, listening. And I've done something. I've used it from time to time. No, 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 not, no, no, not, not. We have one for you and me. That's what I'm saying. No, yes. But I made another one, which was going to be for listeners to jump in. Oh, Like a couple years ago. Yeah. I, I thought we that. talked about it. No. But I just never did it. And it's like, uh, so, yeah. you know, I think there now are I feel a, like it's too late. I, I feel think like there it's are too a lot of now. conversations with me that you have that I'm not there for. <laughs> uh, at least not really. I'm there sort of uh, virtually. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Very, very Interesting. Speaking of conversations, I just between hope you I was me, nice during the, those conversations. The only other thing I wanted to say before we before we let our listeners get there, like please, this is like let us out for recess, like get get us out of here. But uh, the only other thing I wanted to say to you um, is, um, are we going to have another? You know, our four year anniversary is coming up. Okay, not not you and me. This is not a weird thing. Our podcast, uh, yeah, the show, <laughs> the right. show has a four year anniversary uh, at the end of December, and uh, I feel like we should do. Um, a just you and me show where we do a little, we get we dive into the mailbag. I like I, it. I've got some topics. I like it. I've got some. I want to argue with you about this uh, 
this, uh, the, the questioning of this federal judge who didn't what? know what a motion in limine was? Let's do that. Because I, I, I think we probably disagree about that. I want to argue with you about it. And I want to go through our mailbag. And so are we going to get this in before the end of the year? That's what I want to I think we are. I think you and I are not going to disagree about the motion in limine issue mm-hmm. with uh, Commissioner Peterson. Oh, okay. Uh, but, but whatever, we'll find out. Because okay. we'll, 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 we'll do that before the end of the year for sure. We, 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 can we guarantee the listeners we will find something to fight about? Yes. Okay. Okay. And with that, let's get on with the show. Hello, Kate. Hello, guys. <laughs> I, I just say I listen to the podcast a lot, but I still I'm embarrassed to say I still have trouble sometimes with voices. So uh, hence the guys as opposed to I think that was Joe there. But it, it was, was. It was. Okay, good. I, I didn't give you the single biggest clue would have been which would have been somehow mispronouncing your family name. That's usually the dead giveaway that it's me. Um, oh, but mine are so easy. I don't think you could do that. If you <laughs> yeah, this is this is Christian. <clears throat> I'm the one who has again, sounds like I have a cold. Again, you do have a cold. Yeah, That's why year. you sound that way. This has been the year of the, you know, if I can make up a cold brand medicine. That would be the infinite jest name for this year hmm. for me. The <laughs> year of dextromethorphan or something. I don't know, but I haven't taken that. So about those tweets, um, <laughs> you, you say in your paper that, uh, that it's not all about the tweets. I think this is like footnote 14 or something like that. Um, right. But one of the reasons why this this topic of of, you know, the president speaking and the consequences that follow in court and other places from the president speaking uh, is because we have a president now who's seized of a kind of lageria that we've never witnessed in the White House. Uh, mm-hmm. And that creates problems. Right. It creates uh, challenges. Maybe they're not problems. Maybe they're just challenges. <laughs> uh, but it creates something. It's it seems very new that, and indeed, I was sort of wondering as I got toward the end of your paper, uh, um, with beyond the bully pulpit is the main title. Is that right? I'm doing this from memory. Beyond the bully pulpit. Yeah, that's right. Um, so I'm wondering: is there a sense in which uh, the presidency has actually become a thing that is? in a way, uniquely attractive to someone who likes to just talk a lot? Um, You know, it's hard to know how many broader lessons about the nature of the presidency to draw sort of one year into the administration of this most unusual of presidents, right? So certainly he, he liked, you know, President Trump likes to talk a lot. I mean, there's been this profoundly rhetorical dimension of the presidency, um, which gets expressed through different mediums for something like a century or so. I don't think it always looked this way, but it certainly has, um, you know, maybe since Woodrow Wilson, maybe since uh, Teddy Roosevelt, obviously FDR and uh, his fireside chat sort of innovated in the use of technology and went directly to the people in order to sort of generate support for his policy initiatives. Um, so, so I'm not sure whether we're witnessing any kind of, you know, break that is a difference in kind, um, in, at least in the use of the Twitter medium. Um, you know, there are definitely, I think, degree differences in, uh, and style differences. Um, but, but has, has he already in a year had such a transformative effect on the presidency that somehow the nature of the individual who will be drawn to the office um, has fundamentally changed or he reflects that fundamental change. I just, I don't think I'm quite ready to, to sign on to that yet. Yeah. In, in general, I'm, you know, I'm thinking to the paper and, and your uh, discussion of the different speaking styles and, and, and subjects of, of various presidents. And, and you wonder like, 
as as our culture has changed, the way we talk to each other has changed, and the development of mass media has obviously changed the way that that uh, reporters talk to people, for example, or that people talk to other people. And the presidency, of course, is is keeping up with that. You know, presidents use of vocabulary, the kinds of things that they will talk about, the 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 kinds of values they talk about. Of course, that will change with the public dialogue. But you point on the paper some kind of discrete jumps in presidential speech, which I'm not sure are tied necessarily to like discrete leaps or discrete changes in in everyday speech or, or cultural speech. And that's like Andrew Johnson is one example. And then the kind of uncertain, whether it's Roosevelt uh, or um, or Wilson. And then I, for the modern presidents, I don't know if we can we can point to an analog, but those do seem like two big changes in in presidents and their their actual speech. We forget for a second all the other, the directives and the other ways of speaking that you talk about in the paper. Is uh, What do you think about that? Are they like just dramatically different for the president in a way that, you know, it, we, that doesn't necessarily track the, the evolutions of speech in, in, in the culture? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's such an interesting question. I don't think I have drilled down enough on the sort of, you know, kind of the causal link potentially in sort of, sort of both directions between changes in popular uh, styles of speech and discourse and presidential speech. Um, you know, I think I've focused a little bit more on kind of the nature, sort of subject matter and purpose of presidential speech. Um, and, and I gather you guys are talking about something a little bit different. Um, uh, so, so I think that that I think there it's easy to to to, to make a case that that with some of these kind of changes in. Um, just communications technology, there have been changes in the way presidents have chosen to address the public. Um, but I mean, I gather what you're sort of, you're, you're, you're talking about different, you know, the, the kind of, you know, sort of uh, simple staccato quality of maybe the Twitter medium. I mean, one one one, one example I'll give that's somewhat responsive. Um, uh, it ties into the, the, the Trump inaugural, um, uh, but has to do with Twitter. And this is actually um, something that is drawn from analysis that I didn't do, but the political scientist Jeffrey Toulis, who wrote this a really important book, The Rhetorical Presidency, and has a new edition of it coming out. It may already be out. I think it's coming out this month. Uh, and he has a new uh, foreword that talks about Trump, right, because the book is, I don't know, 20, maybe 25 years old. Um, and it's the, just the forward itself is totally brilliant. But he does this really close reading of the Trump, the Trump inaugural address. Um, and he, so he, you know, the, the inaugural got a lot of coverage for being, you know, kind of dystopic and ominous and just sort of different in tone from, from previous inaugural addresses. I, I like actually George W. Bush's evaluation of the speech. You remember that one? What was it like a weird dude or something? He, he, said, he said that was some weird and then an expletive. Mm. Yeah. Um, oh, that's really funny. I'd forgotten that. Yeah. Um, so, so that sort of is one set of observations about the speech. Um, but what Tula's focuses on is, um, so Bannon, who evidently drafted much of the speech, talked to the Wall Street Journal and a couple of other people and explained that speech was actually modeled on Andrew Jackson's 1829 inaugural. Um, and so Tula takes the text of that inaugural and compares it to the text of Trump's inaugural. Huh. And so they're about the same length. They're like, Jackson's is 1,100 words and Trump's is 1,400 words. So not wildly different. Um, but Jackson's runs 12 paragraphs and Trump's runs 75 paragraphs. And what does that reveal? The paragraphs are really short. How short? Most of them are under 140 characters. <laughs> like 65 of 75 are under 140 and the other 10 are under 280. Now, how important paragraphs are like in a, you know, 
deliver or sort of you know orally delivered speech. Who knows? Um, but they are these kind of discrete thoughts and messages. And so the idea of Twitter as informing presidential discourse, I think, goes way beyond just his actual t- tweets in a really interesting way. Um, the other thing about Twitter, and again, this is somewhat responsive, although maybe not perfectly to the question, is that one of the things that Tulis focuses on, I think, is really important, is the power of presidential rhetoric you know, not just to communicate, but to constitute the political kind of body, the political community, and to use a medium that, you know, actually directly reaches a pretty small subset of the population that is very much self-selecting. And that's, you know, also true to a degree about radio, although by the time we're like, I think halfway maybe through the very long terms um, Mm. of FDR, way more than, you know, uh, 10 or 20 percent of the American public, which is, I think, around, I, I haven't looked at the recent data, but something like that is, is, is in terms of Twitter usage. Uh, but there was a much higher percentage of American households that had radios. Um, but Twitter still is, although it looms large, I think, in a lot of people's lives, you know, it's something that only a, a pretty small minority of the population regularly uses. And so to kind of, to sort of choose that and sort of the, the kind of Twitter users and, and the president's Twitter followers as kind of a stand-in for the entirety of the political community um, is pretty meaningful too, sort of regardless of the sort of specific nature of the rhetoric. So I think there are sort of interesting implications, although, as you said at the outset, it, they're not really ones that I explore much in the paper because right. it's a, it's a, I started just, well, you know, in the late days of the Obama administration. And uh, this phenomenon of, of kind of judicial reliance on presidential speech was one um, that is, you know, is definitely not new in the age of Trump although it's it's acquired you know, totally new significance. He's now a multimedia impresario as well in the sense that uh, Twitter, and this is another way in which it's quite different from what the, the topic of your paper, um, is you can link people to audio, you can link people to video. Right. And, and, or just still images. And so he's sort of literally painting pictures with it. And occasionally, as we know from the recent past, occasionally it's, you know, some UK group that... Uh, perpetuates fake videos about Muslims and other craziness. Um, but it's, it's again, it's beyond text or, or it's beyond simple text. Um, it's into the much richer multimedia form. Right. Now, I don't, I, it is also true that, that, that presidents past have, and um, Peggy Noonan in her autobiography about her time writing for President Reagan and, um, and you know, some of the work on speech writing in the Obama administration. I mean, there's there's lots of reliance. Oh, and Michael Waldman has a book about writing speeches for President Clinton. I, I read a lot of speech writing memoirs. In the, <laughs> of re- They're actually really, it's a very fun genre. Um, but, um, uh, you know, there's, they've all done a lot of recycling of other content, right? That and of sort of the use of the reliance on other material, mm. um, you know, is, is that in of itself is not an innovation, but obviously the ability to retweet, the, the, you know, the sort of visual or sometimes visual nature of the medium um, is quite new. I think that's right. There is not, there's not really a parallel. Although I think if you actually looked at the numbers, you know, it's mostly text, right? That is what the president is tweeting. And, and you know, very occasionally there will be this totally inflammatory retweet of, you know, the superimposed CNN logo on the head in the boxing right. match and, um, and things like that. But, but I think that's got to be like in the single digits, right? Most of what he does through Twitter is, is, is you know, is t- speech. It's a kind of speech. Did, what, did the Bush administration start posting on YouTube? I forget when, when the weekly radio address, I don't know if they became a weekly YouTube address or if that was just an occasional thing. I haven't followed followed this closely, but, you know, I mean, FDR had the fireside chats, which I assume had a very big audience. Maybe that had to do with uh, the Depression and, and wartime as much as anything else. Uh, right. 
I don't want to keep talking about the Twitter thing because you explicitly bracket the Trump Twitter thing in your paper. So we'll get to the other kinds of presidential speech in a second. But it does seem like it's reaching far more people. You know, sometimes these official channels of sending out information, maybe they get a lot of hits. I I just feel like not a lot of people would watch those uh, Obama YouTubes um, or, you know, or listen to the weekly radio address anymore. Right. And I do I do think he was the first to do them weekly. Um, uh, President Obama, that is. Um, uh, but it's a great question. I haven't ever crunched numbers, but yeah, getting you know having to, to to go through the steps of going to WhiteHouse.gov and then watch the video. I mean, they pushed it. The White House pushed it out uh, in other ways, but I think you're right. The, the actual sort of numbers were probably pretty low. And it's probably a selected group as well, right? Just like yeah. Twitter is. And not to mention the the select audience for the Federal Register, right? right? Uh, so I mean, it's like all of these kinds of presidential speech. Right have their audience. And there's this, it used to be the state of the union is the one that everybody would consume. And now I think most people consume snippets of that in, mm-hmm. uh, you know, either on Twitter and in little videos, videoettes or, or on cable news or something. And then, um, uh, what, what else would it be? It would be uh, campaign, right? Campaign speeches and how that's clipped and edited by others. So. Right. Although the president, when the president makes a prime time speech, whether it's a State of the Union address or, you know, sort of verse of an announcement of something, you know, related to, you know, war emergency things, you know, that things like that, those those will always, the primetime, um, uh, you know, broadcast networks will break into the regular programming and carry those speeches live. You know, there's a negotiation around all of that that I think is actually pretty interesting that I've not written about, but I've sort of thought about doing that. Um, but those, I think, still do attract uh, to the extent they happen and are pretty infrequent, uh, broad audiences. But you're right, there's not one kind of channel of communication that allows the president to reach the whole country at once, right? And so I do think that in this kind of increasingly polarized media moment, which people, right, are in- ingesting these incredibly sort of curated sort of streams of information, uh, and you have these kind of really edited versions of these speeches, there, there maybe are, are very different versions that segments of the population are ingesting in ways that are probably different from anything that's come before. Now, it does connect to the paper in the sense that you say at one point um, that if we're thinking about which presidential speech events uh, should make their way into court and how, and which ones shouldn't, um, one intuitive uh, thing a person might think is, well, gosh, the, the things the president says that lots more people hear are much better candidates for inclusion in judicial process than things very few people hear. So the stuff you guys are just talking about, about, you know, there's some stuff in the Federal Register, who the heck's going to see that versus something he says on the White House lawn that's uh, carried in the evening news or in tomorrow's paper for all the people who might see that. you know what, you, and you have a very interesting take on why you think that's a misguided notion, and maybe that's a way we could start to break into the the actual topic of your your wonderful paper. Um, uh, so, so why isn't that intuition? Hey, uh, the the more people who see or hear what the president says, the more we should be able to rely, even in court, on that utterance. I think it is definitely right that there is an intuitive argument that that the more people you, who see or encounter some presidential utterance, um, the sort of more appropriate judicial reliance on that utterance might be. So, so, so I think we have to concede that, that's, uh, uh, that, that, that there is an, an argument there. It helps advance all those you know, accountability, transparency, et cetera, kinds of interests. So I think I have a couple of answers, and, and you guys can tell me if, if, if any of them are satisfying. So um, one is that there are those accountability and transparency kinds of values, um, but we have these other sort of 
countervailing values, at least in this context, which have to do with reason giving and procedural regularity and kind of rigor uh, in governmental processes. Um, and all of those values, I think, um, point in the direction of uh, either kind of reduced or judicial reliance or no judicial reliance on these kinds of presidential utterances um, that aren't subject to the ordinary kind of processes of governmental decision making, the development of policy positions and legal positions. Um, and so so you typically, you know, you're saying the Federal Register on the one hand and something that is printed in the you know, front page of the paper um, or available on uh, broadcast news or whatever uh, on the other. So typically these questions are really only going to arise when you have tension between two different representations, right? So what the court should do with the president's words um, you know, is not going to really be a pressing question if the president's words align substantively with, you know, the, these less uh, accessible DOJ briefs or whatever else. So so the tension is really kind of what what sort of is going to ever raise the question. Um, and, you know, so the you, the judge, judges a lot of the time are going to have to choose between those two. And um, and I do think that there are there have been sort of, you know, democratic choices made by both uh, Congress and, uh, you know, many White Houses passed that, um, that both assigned to the Department of Justice, right, the responsibility for offering to courts the legal positions of the United States um, and uh, not allowing presidents to sort of circumvent the ordinary processes by which the legal positions of the United States get crafted and then presented to courts um, simply by sort of either opening their mouths or, um, uh, you know, firing off a tweet uh, that conflicts in important ways uh, with with representations made by the Department of Justice. I remember there are three of these in the I, just to get some concrete examples to help the listeners think about it. Three three that stick out in my mind from the paper are um, uh, obviously Trump saying, you know, we're going to have a complete shutdown of Muslim immigration in the United States and we can figure out what's going on. And then mm-hmm. the justifications advanced in the actual uh, Muslim bans, 1.0, 2.0, and 3.0, look, are, are different. The positions or, you know, the, the, the rationale for, for the ban is different than what uh, Trump gave. And so which do you use? Another example is uh, on the uh, – at a speech um, – in defending the the DACA and DAPA programs, uh, as it, you gave the context in in a footnote, which I thought was fascinating. You know, Obama was was pushed by hecklers in the audience. You're not going far enough with stopping mm-hmm. these deportations, and he says, "Look, I'm changing the law." Something mm-hmm. that, but that phrase, "I'm changing the law," that was then used against him in the Texas case mm-hmm. uh, that resulted in the nationwide injunction. And and then another example that you gave was uh, also from the Obama administration. It had to do with don't ask, don't tell, mm-hmm. right? Where where on the one hand, the president is adopting a very pro-gay stance. At the same time, it's still the rule in the military. This is, early, was it 2010, 2000? Must have been 2010. The litigation yeah. started actually in the late Bush years, but this, but all this was sort of 2009, late 2009, uh, 2010, that all this was sort of happening in the litigation before Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed. Yeah, and so, you know, proceedings, judicial proceedings to defend that had to give justifications, and at the same time you have administration officials, including the president, out there saying there is no justification. There's no military justice. So those are three that stuck out in my mind. Right. Uh, or were there other examples, or, or does that kind of give, you think that gives people an intuition about the kind of disconnect you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, I, there are lots of others, but I think those are three good sort of accessible examples. So maybe it does make sense to talk about those. I mean, so in, yeah, so in the DACA and DAPA litigation, um, and that's kind of what got me interested in this project, it was the first time I had seen such extensive judicial reliance on uh, these, you know, pretty casual utterances by the president. I saw, you know, the president did announce in one of these weekly radio addresses that his administration, the Department of Homeland Security, was going to be undertaking this policy initiative, the original DACA, right, uh, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, which was 
those uh, later expanded in the sort of expanded DACA and then DAPA, right, the Deferred Action for Parents of Americans. So what was actually at issue in this litigation was not the original DACA, but the expanded DACA and DAPA. So I just refer to them as DAPA in the paper. But but there was this question about, you know, whether this was simply, you know, sort of there, there were a lot of kind of discrete administrative law and constitutional questions in the litigation, but at a bunch of different kind of decision points in the litigation, the, the, the court sort of takes these statements by the president uh, and says that they essentially these statements set forth the authoritative position of the United States. Uh, so, so one example, the, the, the Justice Department says, look, all th- these field you know, agents in the Department of Homeland Security under this new policy retain the discretion to make individualized determinations about eligibility for the DAPA program. Um, uh, so, you know, this isn't actually a legal change for which notice and comment rulemaking was required. Um, and meanwhile, the president had said, and yeah, I do have this really long, that's just way too long a footnote, but it's a really <laughs> long story. I kind of wanted to tell yeah. the whole story, which is that the president is at this rally in Chicago and he's being heckled. Um, and he was always very, you know, it happened, uh, uh, activists would heckle him and he was, would typically listen respectfully and then respond. And so, um, so they're shouting at him, you know, deporter in chief, not one more. So these are a lot of, um, you know, immigration reform activists who are really angry at the administration's deportation record uh, and shouting at him. So he sort of lets people have their turn and then says, okay, you know, now, now you've had, you've, you've said your piece, uh, give me a chance. And what you're not taking account of is that I just took action to change the law. And so it's this kind of heated exchange that I don't think was scripted. Um, and I, you know, what he's trying to say is, uh, you know, I'm, I, I, I am, you know, I do hear your concerns, right. And I've done something that responds to them. And you also sort of that, that's part of the kind of story of my administration too. At least that's what I think he was saying. Right. Um, and the court pulls this just took action to change the law and says this is a this is a legal change. And so, you know, notice and comment rulemaking was required. He couldn't do this through this secretarial memo, which was what um, the DAPA policy was announced through, you know, and, and that kind of concession almost is how the court treats it was in real tension with what the way DHS and DOJ defending the program uh, described it again as a sort of case by case kind of discretionary determination. And, you know, maybe, you know, the, 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 there, there are people, I think, who sort of think various things about whether notice and comment rulemaking should have been pursued in doing the original DACA and doing right. DAPA and DACA. So I'm, I'm not even weighing in on that. It's just a question of the propriety of having sort of yanked out of context this one phrase uh, and putting and, and then having put so much stock in it. Uh, in the kind of evaluation of the lawfulness of the program. Yeah, and it's, it's so interesting, right? You, you contrast that with. Uh, so, some speech or document which involves like a either a huge White House process or a big interagency process, whether it's a, as, as you point out earlier in the paper, uh, a foreign policy speech, which is like vetted to the nth degree, it sounds like, or at least until this administration was vetted to the nth degree. And, right. or, or a, um, you know, an executive order. Um, I, I forget some of the other, you know, examples, but but presidential directives. I mean, so, you know, there there are instances of presidential speech which go through much more process, but are heard by far fewer people, and and so there are kind of two things going on. Like, you you identify the the two kind of administrative state takes on this. Right, one is the the overseer versus what's the other one? The decider. The decider, decider. right? So yeah. what what role is the is the president playing? But there's also this. <sighs> I'm I'm kind of fumbling around here, but you know when I hear Trump say uh, during the campaign, uh, you know we're going to shut down all immigration, Islam is a problem, and he's you know, and then they come out with uh, Muslim ban 1.0. I think you know that was his real reason, you know. Whereas you know you can also argue that campaign speech is inherently you know there's some puffery, there's some sales talk, and there has to be 
there has to be, you know, uh, room uh, to bloviate on the campaign stump for exactly the reasons that you give um, for thinking that maybe, you know, I've changed the law is not a very important statement from Obama. But on the other hand, you know, looking at that speech, I really do think, I mean, don't you, that that he really did feel like he was changing the law. But I think he was making a law on the books, law in action type distinction, right? That, that mm-hmm. a change in enforcement priorities is a change in the law, but you've got to be a legal realist to see, to, you know, to, to see how those two are the same. Right. Well, and he's, yeah, and, and, and I don't think that he, he probably would have had he believed he was committing himself to sort of to some legally relevant characterization of the action would have, you know, his, his he and his team have thought quite differently, I think, about how exactly to respond to those hecklers. Um, so, and, and, you know, so, so with the Muslim ban, um, I, I should say, so I do, I, I have this kind of background proposal, which is right as, as a general matter, when there's tension between things the president says, and these other kind of more authoritative representations offered to court, uh, the latter controls, but I do have some pretty significant exceptions that, that, yeah. that I also propose in the paper. And one of them is directly applicable to the Muslim ban litigation. So, uh, so I, I definitely don't take the position that this, um, that these kinds of statements are irrelevant in, in that case, I, I, to, to, in terms of the campaign speech, I think. I think I kind of avoid taking a really strong position one way or the other. I, I tend to agree that more, you know, that putting less stock in the pre-inauguration, um, I think post-election, sort of the transition period is, 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 you know, closer to the presidency probably than to campaigning. Um, mm-hmm. Although, although I think there is, you know, potentially something salient about sort of the moment of taking the oath. Um, but, but I do think that, that, that the kind of, for the reasons that you identify in the puffery and that kind of campaign speech inevitably entails, I think putting too much stock in, in campaign speech is uh, potentially problematic. But, but the big exception that I think that the, the a lot of the Muslim ban uh, rhetoric falls into is just this kind of when when you have kind of established legal tests that provide for the relevance of the intent of a government actor, right. then I think it is it, it would be very strange to suggest that the, the the president is sort of the only government actor whose intent doesn't matter. <laughs> Especially we're talking about executive action, right? Because right. You remember the two were executive orders. The third one was styled as a proclamation, but there's no you know real legal distinction between those. Um, they're all direct presidential action, um, and so where you have tests under the equal protection clause or the Establishment or Free Exercise Clause, or, you know, kind of weird other areas of Dormant Commerce Clause, like lots of, you know, specific legal doctrine that sets forth the relevance of the intent of government actors. And, you know, you can, I think, quarrel about whether sort of we took a wrong turn in the law in so elevating intent in a lot of these areas, but it's pretty established at this point. And so, again, I think a presidential carve-out would be pretty hard to justify. And I do think, that given that, you know, you have Establishment clause, equal protection clause, sort of you know a handful of arguments um, that have been brought in the cases made in the cases against these various iterations of the Muslim of the, of the travel ban um, that uh, sort of squarely fall kind of within those doctrinal silos. Um, there, I think it is appropriate to bring in a questions of intent, and then you just have these sorts of evidentiary questions. So, sort of how do you go about establishing intent? And you know you have you have case law that says that the statements made by decision makers and particularly contemporaneous statements that seem to go to state of mind uh, are totally appropriate for courts to consider. And one thing I, I, I contrast, I can't actually remember if this made it into the final draft of the paper, but but one way I try to sort of suggest that bringing in these kinds of statements about a Muslim ban, things like that, for the purpose of go, of establishing the president's intent might be and is appropriate, but putting too much legal stock in, in presidential statements with respect to kind of interpreting that sort of scope, say, or kind of operation of the executive order might not be appropriate. Right. Um, is through this the green this illustration of the the kind of green card holders, right? So remember, with the first executive order, the one that was issued like a week after inauguration, 
there was this real question about whether green card holders were also subject to the ban. Uh, and you remember, you know, total chaos in the airports for the first right. couple of weeks after the order was yeah. issued. And a couple of White House officials made these statements that suggested, like, you know, that green card holders were covered by the ban. Um, and then soon thereafter, the White House counsel issued this memorandum to the agency saying, no, 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 that's wrong. Um, lawful permanent residents, right, green card holders are not subject to the ban. And the Ninth Circuit, in its opinion on this first order, sort of asked, like, what is the nature of this White House counsel memorandum? Right. <laughs> the answer is, it's nothing. It means nothing. Um, uh, so, so you know, the order itself, right, is kind of what's relevant. Um, and I think that was right. And I think that if the president had tweeted, you know, or Annette said it's in a speech something to the effect of either green card holders, uh, sorry, you know, tough luck, this is a tough ban, and that's the point, and green card holders are subject to it, or, no, no, we never meant to cover green card holders, sort of both of those, you know, if they conflicted with what DOJ told the courts about the scope of the order, would have been irrelevant, or, you know, that's how I would have urged the courts to treat them. And so that's different. So that's, you know, it, it is intent, it's a tricky sort of concept, right? So that's his understanding of the operation of the order, uh, I think is different from his intent in a constitutional sense, with respect to, you know, intent as kind of deep motive. I mean, I, you know, I, that we, we could sort of get into the kind of nature of intent. I have another project I'm trying to work, sort of work my way through that goes, I think, deeper on this idea of intent and government actors. It's only a very small part of the discussion here. But but it, but it, I think it is why I, I think can consistently argue that, you know, much of what the president says, including maybe about these uh, executive orders, should be discounted or disregarded by courts. But but where his statements go to intent, uh, then I think they're properly considered. And many of the statements that he's made, I think, yeah. do go to intent. No, I mean, when we're policing reasons and the, the law asks us to evaluate whether uh, whether the whether a reason was in a set of bad reasons, then you have, you know you're going to have to try to figure out what those reasons are. Whereas if it's you know uh, you're you're looking to the president to um, clarify the meaning, you know, the, an interpretive question, well then maybe it's less relevant. You're looking at me there, Joe. You well, wanna... I want to go back to DAPA. Okay. Uh-huh. I think there are levels about good faith and and not in the judiciary that might be another. A source for arguing about how the courts generally should treat statements, presidential statements. So, like, if I imagine as an alternative reality that the president, in response to that heckler, had said, you know, we're changing the way we enforce the law, or had said, even more oddly, maybe, um, we're changing the way we use our discretion to enforce the law. um, I don't think the DOJ lawyers would have sought to introduce those actually in that alternative universe, quite supportive statements about their theory of the way DAPA and DACA actually worked legally. I don't think the government lawyers would have relied on it because they wouldn't have needed to. Um, uh-huh. I, I don't think the opponents would have sought to make much hay out of it because it wouldn't help. But I also don't think the case would have come out differently because... Uh, my understanding, and if I'm if I'm wrong, I, I I hope I will get corrected. But but my understanding is that the challengers very intentionally went to the courthouse they went to, knowing that the district court judge there or some of the district court judges there were extremely hostile to the administration, especially on matters of immigration, mm-hmm. and therefore that that it, it is um, that part of what was happening in that case 
uh, as interesting sort of as a matter of doctrine and jurisprudence as it may be, that, that it's also very, not, <laughs> very much not about law. Uh, but about politics and about partisan politics in particular. Yeah. Uh, and um, and therefore, the judge is just sort of seizing on uh, something that, um, you know, when, if, if you're looking for cudgels uh, and you find another one with which to beat your, somebody, uh, you know, go right ahead. I don't, um, know, I don't know. Another way of saying this, though, right, would be that, that if you're going to use statements, public statements of, of a president and those around him or her as evidence of meaning and intention, well, there are just so many of those, right, that, all, that if, if those things are relevant, then all you need to do is find a friendly courthouse. And the Trump supporters would, would suggest that's what happened in the Ninth Circuit, well, right? What, so what I'm suggesting by bringing up this, uh, this way of thinking about it is that it's a reason not to rely on any of them, ex- for, except to the degree that, as, as you were both discussing, except to the degree that law makes intent highly relevant and, uh, for that actor and— um, uh, helps you understand that person's intent. If, if in that situation, uh, then the president would be treated like anyone else whose intent was it's relevant. Evidence of motivation. Correct. Yeah. Um, but but in an instance where it's not, the fact that as you just said, there are so many presidential statements from which to choose. Right. I mean, this is uh, this is the old saw about legislative history on steroids. Right. You just look around the party for your friend. Uh, mm-hmm. it, in presidential statements, it's not a party; it's a stadium, right? It's a, <laughs> it, it's it's just a mob of of folk who you could just look through for your friends. So, that, so that doesn't sound too helpful. Uh, or alternatively, there there, um, if someone is ill disposed on other grounds, uh, why give them another thing with which to hassle uh, the president as a litigant? Um, it, Given that we should just focus on the the more traditional legal materials, I mean, it seems to me both of these are additional reasons to think that it, introducing these statements willy nilly is a bad idea. Yeah, but I mean, the president also said, Obama also said, you can come out of the shadows, right? Uh, there, there's this entrapment angle as well in in right. in Kate's work, right? That that a a reason to think that this is another a, exception for a, a reliance. Well, that the, 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 yeah, that this is yeah. a statement of the law is that that's what people heard and they acted accordingly. And, and so it's just an extension of that reliance principle or anti-entrapment principle might go all the way toward something which looks more like just a pure transparency principle. It's that people should expect that what the president says is correct, that it is a, a correct statement of what he or she is doing, right? Uh, you know, I, I relied on my understanding of, of, of the meaning of a particular presidential action. I relied on what the president said in casting my vote in calling up my congressperson and doing this, doing that, right? I mean, that reliance principle, in, unless you're going to just draw an arbitrary line somewhere, which ultimately is what we do all the time in law. And so I'm not, I'm kind of, <laughs> I'm just kind of pushing here to see, to provoke a little bit, but right. uh, uh, go ahead, Kate. Yeah. No, yeah, I mean, I've t- lots of reactions. I mean, I, I certainly don't think that um, it's inappropriate to rely on presidential statements when casting votes and, you know, and, and, and for executive branch actors to do the same, right? So to me, the harder questions, right, are sort of the, what, what happens in how this all plays out in court. But, but I certainly wouldn't suggest that, you know, of course, right, the president should be accountable, right, for his words at the ballot box and in lots of other contexts, right? It's just a question of whether uh, and how courts should hold, should or bind the president to those kinds of representations. Um, and I mean, the, the, the point about the potential, you know, forum shopping with respect to this district court judge in Texas, uh, who invalidated the DAPA program, is actually part of the reason I got interested in this question, which is that, yeah, is this just 
uh, the sort of sui generis kind of scenario in which this uh, hostile judge, uh, you know, was just sort of pulled in presidential statements, um, among other reasons, to invalidate this uh, Obama executive action to which he was quite hostile. And that's why Texas uh, sought to bring the case before him, right? That that was in, in you know one of the narratives about the case. And if this if this was just kind of this outlier episode, then it didn't seem worth kind of exploring much further. But as I started to look, there there were a bunch of other examples, and some in these highly politicized contexts, but not exclusively. So it did seem like it was worth teasing out even before, obviously, we got to the kind of moment of the Twitter presidency when all of a sudden these presidential statements were wildly relevant, um, sort of, you know, across the kind of waterfront. Yeah, I agree. And I wasn't trying to suggest it, it wasn't worthwhile. It, it, it's simply that once you once as you did, you 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 uncover that there are all these other examples and that there's actually a, a, a deeper and more important phenomenon going on that in addition to all the other things one could say about it that you did say, um, I, I just kept thinking to myself and additional <laughs> the the kind of mischief problem uh mischief making in the hands of a of a of a judicial official might be um at least to me might be and and in part because I am drawn to the overseer rather than the decider sort of model of of presidential uh sort of presiding over the executive branch hmm. um right. that that um it, it, it seems to me that in that context, uh, the likelihood that uh, that mischief could be made by something that is not a particularly thoroughly considered uh, remark, it's just it's 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 quite pernicious. I mean, it, it, because it it sort of suggests, oh, well, you know, the president needs to be a robot and we need to push as much everything that comes out of his or her mouth needs to be sort of pre-screened and considered to the hilt because it will always get treated as if it had been considered to the hilt. That and, uh, just seems kind of, quite dystopic to me. You seem confident that, or I assume that you're confident that to the extent the president takes one position in a speech and then has a considered, you know, interagency process driven or White House driven statement in front of courts or in an executive order, and those are different, then it really puts a lot of pressure on the media to uncover that difference and, and or you know, potentially, I, I don't know if it puts a lot of pressure on me. I mean, opponents will do the same thing, that's, right? That's, that's true, I suppose. I mean, I, you know, one, it, it, in a way it gets to, it really kind of pushes into the deeper territory of this as a separation of powers issue uh, with, because, because Kate, you pointed to what I think are, are actually really interesting statutes when you sort of pause and, and uh, as you prompted me to do, sort of think about all of their implications, right? The um, This is the stuff in Title 28 that kind of sets up the Justice Department, uh, gives us an attorney general, gives us a solicitor general, right. um, you know, and, and, and puts in their hands litigation on behalf of the United States. So, so I guess one way to think about how, how much Role, a role Congress should play in trying to regularize this process. Um, so you've got proposals at the end of your paper. You sort of got a framework, right? Um, here, here's a presumption about why we shouldn't receive the statements. Here are instances where we could receive the statements. Do you think Congress could pass your your recommendations as a statute? Mm. And do you th- and do you think if they did, uh, courts uh, ought to uphold it, even if someone tried to attack it on separation of powers grounds? You mean a statute which said something like statements of the president that don't, don't go through process X, Y, or Z are presumptively not evidence of intention yeah, with, Yes, or with a foreign relations or, exception and a motive exception. Right, right. Right, it's the Shaw statute uh, as, <laughs> as closely as possible. So is that, you know, put, put aside the wisdom of whether Congress should pass mm-hmm. it, if they decided to, 
um, and the president decided to sign it or they passed it over a president's veto, although I suppose that might make a difference in how you receive it constitutionally. But but should a, should a court be bound by that? It's definitely not a question that I've thought about. So so this is going to be, you know, off the cuff. Um, That's what we do around here. Dave. So, <laughs> sorry, totally fine. Basically spared me until now. Um <laughs> You know, to the extent that federal courts don't love to be uh, sort of told how to discharge what feel like, um, you know, sort of core judicial duties, it's hard for me to see a court permitting Congress to so prescribe the kind of materials on which they can rely, right? And they, you know, Congress, right, typically hasn't passed statutes like that, probably because it's concerned that courts won't, um, you know, uphold them. So I guess I think... Um, now that's sort of a descriptive, not a normative kind of answer. Ought they to, uh, courts, right, uh, uphold a statute like this? You know, I, I, these are sort of pretty pragmatic recommendations, but, but are, I guess I don't see sort of, I, I just made kind of a, a, a territorial, right, sort of observation about kind of sort of judicial sphere, mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. but, but, but I don't. Because there's sort of yeah. a separation, there's an incipient separation of powers argument in the paper, uh, that points to the existing statutes. I mean, one, uh, sure. you, you, you mentioned 516, 518. These are provisions that, again, kind of give us an AG, give us a, a, an SG. Who uh, speaks authoritatively on what questions? A, a, in yeah. courts of right. the United States, right, right, in litigation right. where the United States is a party or where, you know. But, but those statutes don't, don't say, you know, judges, you cannot consider what the president says. Ah, but things. don't they? Implicitly, when a court is confronted with a situation where the president, outside the context of litigation, has said one thing, and the lawyers for the Justice Department are hearing courts saying a different thing, right? You could argue that to uh, to take such solicitude toward the president's contrary statement and and just sort of run roughshod over what the lawyers are standing in front of you telling you on behalf of the United States is to violate those statutes. But that's what... Or, or to... Well, or, and, and maybe say, ah, yeah. but you can't because they're unconstitutional because you can't tell a court how to do its business right, in right. this regard. Uh, I mean, I think these are kind of thorn, very thorny, deep questions, these but are, I think they're there. They're akin to the question about whether Congress can pass a statute mandating a particular form of statutory interpretation, right? But this is mandating a certain form of executive interpretation. Uh, That's know, true. Uh, the, the sort of Rosen or the Rosencrantz sort of yeah, federal yeah. rules of interpretation. Yeah, or, yeah. yeah. This is I the mean, submarine statutes thing we talked about a while it, ago. It, yeah. It's in that family of, of stuff. Right. So what should a court do you do, do with an argument like that? If a, if a DOJ lawyer ha, ha, sort of stood up and said, hey, you're violating the separation of powers. Right. You know, I think that uh, one of the exceptions that we haven't talked about and that I, that, that, that I propose in the paper is that, that if the president wants very clearly to say something like, you know, in a speech, right, or even in a tweet, the legal position of the United States is X. <laughs> And he doesn't typically say that, but but a lot of the time, right, it's courts parsing things that are much more ambiguous, right, with respect to what kind of a claim or statement even is this. Um, but the legal position of the United States is X. Um, I'm not. I guess I would find something Article Two objectionable in Congress, you know, just from the perspective of, or you know, maybe Article Three objectionable as well. But for Congress to tell a court that it can't take seriously that representation, right? So, you know, would that violate the statute that, 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 you know, would the president's sort of representation insofar as it clashed with something in a brief that set forth a totally different vision of the um, position of the United States? I I mean, it's tricky. To go back to the overseer versus decider kind of distinction, part of, I don't really take a position in the paper about those two. And I actually think the proposals that I offer are pretty consistent with both, right? Even if you have... And just just to clarify, the overseer is the president as as kind of a manager of other people who are speaking and other people formulating policy, whereas the decider is... 
nominally, the president gets to decide everything, whether he or she actually does or not. Exactly. Right? And like, even where statutes sort of confer kind of decision-making authority and discretion on particular uh, executive branch actors, you know, cabinet officials and things like that, um, the president sort of has the authority to kind of bind the discretion or sort of override it um, as a constant. You know, there's a few, there are different kind of strengths and weaknesses of this vision, but the really strong form is just kind of as a matter of constitutional entitlement, right? The president sort of gets to make all decisions um, that the, that Congress sort of assigns to the executive branch, uh, even if there's another specific executive branch official identified. So so if the, the legal position of the United States is X is something that the president wants to tweet and wants the courts to give legal effect to, um, you know, if you're, uh, if you have sort of a decider vision, then that's fine. The president could always, you know, sort of um, tell the a subordinate official to take that position anyway. And so you're kind of, you know, sort of circumventing the process a little bit or, or just sort of streamlining by giving that message directly to the courts, but why sort of make him go through uh, these kind of internal mechanisms. Um, but even using the overseer model, the president has lots of sort of internal channels that he can utilize to get his subordinates to take the position, you know, to tell courts that the legal position of the United States is X, um, but he kind of has to go through those. And if he encounters resistance or disagreement internally, then there will be pushback and there may be resignations. And ultimately, you know, everybody agrees that the president, you know, maybe obviously with uh, exceptions that are sort of set forth in statute with good cause protections and things like that, but the president can fire people, right, who refuse to tell the courts that the legal position of the United States is X. Um, so, you know, using this kind of overseer model, he can get to the same place. He just has to sort of go through these internal executive branch channels first. Get get to the same place, but it kind of forces the payment of a political cost, right? Definitely, I mean, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and there's a, I think there's a due process benefit and a transparency benefit in, in that respect of, of preferring that that the president uh, go through that, th- those sorts of processes. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's a transparency cost as well. You know, the decider model favored by Elena Kagan, among others, right, is that... You pa- know, past he, Elena Kagan. I don't, I don't, I don't know <laughs> right, what she would say now, but from her very different vantage. I have thought about that a lot. Yeah, where, where, where she would come down on this stuff now, I don't know. No idea. But certainly, at, you know, in her most famous paper, um, uh, she sort of sets forth this, you know, pretty strong kind of presidential uh, decider model, although I think, you know, Strauss, I think, maybe coins the term later. But yes, that's very, her paper is very much sort of the leading, I think, uh, kind of instance of that president as decider vision. You know, I got a question going back to the to closer to the beginning of the paper, because we might have some some listeners who, who might be asking, you know, well, you know, uh, if I'm a court and I'm trying to, I don't know, interpret a statute and the president said one thing and an agency said another, this, that, or the other, then like how, how did courts originally, like what was the original design, you know, in terms of the president's role? And you may be a unitary executive, you know, whatever. One, one thing you do that's really interesting early in the paper is talk about how differently presidents spoke up until, what, Andrew Johnson, right? I mean, the original preference or the original practice was was not to speak on matters of policy. It was considered not the president's role. Do you want to go into that? I, I found it fascinating. I hadn't really read about it before. Yeah, no. And, and it's and, and, and a lot of it is, uh, you know, kind of comes from the work of Jeff Tullis, who I mentioned before, but other political right. scientists do. And, and I don't know that Andrew Johnson is the break. He's sort of this kind of outlier um, still in this kind of early period in which you just you, you don't have direct presidential appeals to the public, right? You have the president addressing Congress. Um, and when he does speak publicly, 
um, the president is typically sort of offering broad kind of constitutional instruction, um, uh, uh, kind of visions for the country, but not sort of specific policy programs um, and certainly not direct appeals uh, uh, to the public, right? It's sort of viewed as bearing some uncomfortable similarities to demagoguery, which, right, the founders are quite concerned about. And so um, so at least in the Tulis uh, account, that's that's just not something we see presidents really engage in with a couple of exceptions. And Andrew Johnson is this major exception. Uh, and one of the articles of impeachment against him, right, talks about the intemperate harangues that he had. <laughs> Sued. So rhetoric is actually part of now, the, you know, he's most famously impeached for the uh, uh, refusal to write, follow the Tenure in Office Act with respect to the Secretary of, uh, I guess, War, not Defense, Secretary of War at the time. Um, but but it is definitely one of the articles of impeachment against him. Um, and so his break with the rhetorical norms of the 19th century kind of presidency uh, is viewed as impeachable, right? Um, uh, although, right, you know, not, not not quite successfully. So he breaks, and um, I do think that that Tulis would suggest that, that Lincoln, in certain respects, definitely breaks, right? But wartime kind of presidency, and particularly the Civil War, yeah. um, is sort of its own kind of isolated historical episode. And so then you have kind of reversion after the war uh, to the kind of more sort of standard 19th century sort of reserved model of uh, presidential communication to the public. And it isn't really until the turn of the century um, and the first couple of decades of the 20th century that you have these kinds of direct rhetorical appeals. And then it's just about kind of the way that there's sort of this transformation, you know, largely as a result of of technological developments, which we talked about. It's so weird to think about the presidency as an as in some ways an apolitical office, right? Once being ministerially and and functionally and and to broader values, but not to, not to policy. And so if it sets up this kind of fascinating, you know, everybody who listens to this probably knows I'm not an originalist, but it is interesting to think like, you know, if you were trying to figure out how to think about, uh, if you were trying to think about originalism in this respect, you might, you know, it's rather obvious that we're just going to have to design something new to deal with presidents who talk about policy and politic all the time. Right. I mean, we're just going to like, what does it mean when the president takes a position which is different than other members of his or her administration? Like how how to deal with that? I mean, since presidents didn't even talk that way and weren't even imagined to have talked that way at the beginning of the republic, it seems like that's a question that nobody really thought about at the time. Yeah. And I mean, it's and certainly it's kind of, you know, a, a unitary versus non-unitary sect of kind yeah, of debate, yeah. right? It didn't spring up until much, much later. No, I totally agree. Reading the kind of early, the sort of historical and political science literature on the early presidency, um, uh, which is, you know, different from the legal scholarship on the question, right? This sort of like vision of this kind of apolitical statesman is just almost impossible to get your brain around from <laughs> a contemporary perch. But uh, I've been pretty persuaded that that, that actually is an accurate reflection um, of the sort of original, and, and a part because of these kind of fears of demagoguery. And and, you know, there are certain features of this president are uh, our contemporary president are much more demagogic than uh, and, and than any president previously. Right. Despite this kind of, uh, you know, accrued um, uh, kind of power, both, you know, that's somewhat a result of sort of this changed use of rhetoric, um, but also a result of lots of other things uh, that we've seen sort of steadily, you know, with the kind of rise of the imperial presidency. It's interesting because right? the 19th century, the 19th century courts too are like the trope is that they're not political. Now I'll probably read something by Brian Tamanaha tomorrow, which tells me that in fact courts were much more political than we think. You know, this is the anti-formalism type kind of thing. But you know, certainly you know until Dred Scott, you, you don't get the Supreme Court like wading into deep national controversy. Maybe they were. Um, uh, I don't know. Uh, yeah, it, I, I don't think you. I I think that's. Um, I think Marshall. Whether he looked yes, like he was waiting in or not, yeah, he yeah, obviously yeah. was. And, uh, yeah. you know, I think there's another, of course, there's another model, and it's constitutional monarchy, 
right, with a right. parliament. So right. in that context, having the head of state be apolitical is not only not uh, is not only uh, you know not hard to understand. It's it's what everyone would expect. That's kind of what I'm right? driving at with the court talk too. Like it's like the, there's a primacy of the legislature that I started to think right. about when I read this piece. And I don't know how accurate it is, but it sure seems like the, you know the Supreme Court, whatever role they were playing and the courts were playing, it was not right. desegregation of the schools level. And whatever you might have thought you, you of know. that before the Civil War as a as a viable way to think about the American system after the Civil War and especially after the turn of the century, it's no longer viable at all. Right uh, to think of uh, it, this as some sort of effort to uh, instantiate a, a a monarchy without a monarch. Right. Uh, and a parliament rather than something else. It but when just, you think about it just section, doesn't work that way. When you think about the Civil War amendments and the, the grant of power to Congress to enforce these constitutional rights and to decide on these, it, it starts, I don't know, it, it feels like it makes a little bit more sense thinking about it this way, where, where Congress is the political body mm-hmm. in the 19th century. And I, again, I don't know how accurate this is, but I just started thinking about this as I was, as I was, reading, your, as I was reading your paper because it seems like this is a question as, you know, with... Many questions that arise with the rise of the administrative state. We like we don't really have old tools to deal with. There seem like we're using new tools all the time. Right. Mm. Yeah. No. And it, 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 what you just said sort of ties into the earlier question about you know this 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 uh, arguably very political judge in Texas and and there's some other you know that's obviously been an accusation in um, uh, the last year right that 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 courts joining the resistance right that there are these hostile to Trump courts that challengers to various administration initiatives have found largely in the Ninth Circuit, not exclusively. I, I think that a lot of that is quite overstated. But this kind of question of sort of the ascent of this political president and the ascent of political courts happening, not perfectly sort of in lockstep, but that those are, uh, you know, related potentially phenomena uh, is something that would be interesting to kind of think through. And I really having, you know, focused in this project on the president, um, I really haven't I, I have focused on that, but that those do the sort of the ascent of um, and I mean, some of it is about this, you know, kind of impossible uh, to sort of disagree, you know, the idea of constitutional politics as opposed to pure politics, right? So there's always been kind of constitutional politics right. that I think have, have the courts have been quite engaged in, but sort of the line between the, you know, sort of the law, the legal or constitutional and political um, yeah, is, is one I think you could probably spend your whole career sort of trying to locate and, 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 and wildly fail. Um, but, but I think there is something sort of interesting about that you know, that potential parallel development that you just identified courts and not just the president as becoming these more political bodies. And, and so much depends on on the politics of the time too, right? I mean, I think, you know, whether you view courts as jumping in the resistance camp or courts as struggling through a challenging time depends on the way you perceive what's what's happening. And I don't want to make this too much about Trump. It, it, on the other, you know, is it is is the whole Trump era sui generis? Well, that's part of what we're in the process of trying to figure out, right? Is will this be a sui generis era or not? Will we return to normal times where Kate's main theory in this piece can be adopted and serve its purpose, and no one, everyone thinks, yeah, that's the right idea. But right now, it's it's his words, it's his tweets that are the best evidence that there's a breakdown in precisely the kinds of processes on which you rely right. to build this theory, right? Yeah, and that's. And how courts take account of that seems to be the difficult question. Like, how do they, do they cite the words directly or are they just informing their kind of, their their psychological attitude toward the case when they, you know, when they are maybe a little less deferential than they might have been? And they don't have to justify it based on anything he said, but in fact, what they, what he has said has, has caused it. You know what I mean? Uh, Yeah, no. And you sort of saw all of that on display. I don't know if you guys listened, but the the oral argument in the um, Fourth Circuit on the third iteration of the travel ban, like a week or two ago. Um, yeah, it's it's you know how how much it does inform 
you know, they, they're sort of asking, can we take judicial notice of the tweets? And this, this, this sort of comes up a lot. And the Justice Department lawyer was really struggling, I think, with, with, with how to respond. I think he did a very nice job. But, um, but he, you know, DOJ, right, had in a separate filing, in a separate case, basically conceded, and not apparently for just the purposes of that sort of case, but more broadly, that the tweets of the president do represent the legal position of the United States. So he kind of was stuck with that, um, but still sort of encouraged the court in the Fourth Circuit, you know, the most recent travel ban case, uh, to disregard the president's words. But there were also this really interesting exchange with, I think it was um, Judge Harris, in which, um, because the because having sort of see, maybe not totally succeeded in, in, in convincing the on-bank court that they, you know, shouldn't look at these any of these tweets at all, um, the DOJ lawyer sort of pivoted to saying, well, you know, in the third iteration of the travel ban, there was this pretty extensive uh, process of, right, sort of reviewing the kind of uh, relationships with uh, with every country, right? What kind of information sharing uh, existed, and then sort of the new list was generated as a result of that worldwide review, and uh, it was signed off on by multiple cabinet secretaries, none of whom have made statements like this. And it was just this really weird moment in which it was like, well, this is like the sort of complete uh, shattering of this sort of idea of a unitary executive, right? So somehow right. these others, these other you know, more pure uh, subordinate officials, right, having not tainted their processes with any of the kinds of statements that the president has, somehow cleansed the result of the process. And Judge Harris was just sort of pressing, like, what, 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 how could that possibly matter? Um, and I'm not sure there was a very satisfying answer, but it is, but, but you know, the, the sort of charge that courts are joining the resistance, you know, I, I, again, I think I, I don't put that much stock in it. I think most of the time, they're just they're they're genuinely struggling with this somewhat sort of new set of questions, right? As I I think I try to show in the paper, right? Not totally new, but sort of the frequency and the stakes of sort of the, these kind of presidential utterances and sort of their impact on ordinary legal processes. I think uh, there's definitely something quite new there. And in that way, they're not different than other consumers of right. kind of executive speech, right? I mean, there was an article the other day about. Uh, about our allies and others trying to figure out what our foreign policy was and do you pay attention right. to what Tillerson says or do you pay attention to what unnamed White House sources say who are saying that Tillerson doesn't speak for the White I mean, like, it seems like whoever you are, if you're trying to determine what the administration means, um, you, you can't rely on the same signals as you might have relied on in the past. In that sense, judges aren't really in a different position. No, um, I think they're, yeah. they're they're just genuinely in good faith, I think, sort of try, trying to figure this out. And, and I think that much of the time they have kind of the tools, and I don't really get into this in, in this paper, but they kind of have the tools which are things like, you know, DOJ has urged on these on, on, on courts and a lot of this litigation, um, you know, there's a presumption of, of, of regularity and good faith, right, in sort of the output of government processes. And and I think that's that's right. There's There are cases that say that, but these are just presumptions, right? These are uh, these can be pre- rebutted, and I think that you you know a way for courts sort of not to to wildly overhaul uh, you know existing kind of deference frameworks and other frameworks is just to sort of say you know we're gonna these these ordinary presumptions do apply, but they're just presumptions. And when you have pretty strong evidence, and you do in some of these cases that ordinary processes haven't been followed, um, that maybe maybe we're not going to sort of assume good faith. I mean, it depends on the case, obviously, um, but that all of that justifies uh, looking in a different way at the sort of outputs of, of government processes. And so and so I do think there are ways for courts not to, to, to totally sort of radically overhaul doctrine and sort of existing approaches to yeah, executive decision making. It, it starts to get really weird, doesn't it? I mean, you know, if so, so suppose you're in a case where normally you, you would have given, given some deference to an agency for some reason. Um, uh, but then you um, there's some tweet, there's some crazy tweet, uh, right. which has bad reasons. And 
what, what, you know, whatever. And, but, but then you're trying to figure out, well, did the tweet influence, and you've got a part in the paper, where you talk about whether political influence on an agency should actually increase deference or decrease deference. There's a kind of a, a, a break among administrative law scholars about and there's that. there's sort of also a parallel, like in the military context, um, you know, improper command influence is actually, a, right. I mean, that's this a real Bo, problem in courts martial. Well, so, the Bo, the Bo Bergdahl court martial had to deal right. with exactly this issue, right? trying to figure out what to do. Right. So, uh, but, but, but what if, then you get into these weird things. Well, yeah, there was a tweet, but then you find out that, that the White House staff has been uh, you know, they get up in the morning and they read these tweets. They figure what's going on before the president gets in. They run damage control. Like, are we gonna <laughs> are we gonna have hearings which go into the kinds of damage control that the White House staff runs when the president tweets before he gets out of bed in the morning while he watches Fox and Friends? I mean, it gets to be a very kind of weird taking of evidence in order to figure out how to engage in interpretation. Right? I haven't said that very well, but it's like I'm trying to think through it myself here. No, that's right. And, and, and in Morgan and Overton Park, and right, there, are, there are a handful of Supreme Court cases, right, that do say, you know, that, that sort of set forth this very heavy presumption in, against any judicial process that will inquire into the decision making, you know, sort of of executive branch officials. And that's not exactly what you're talking about. If you're talking about hearings. But um, uh, but I think that 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 actually undertaking, whether it's in Congress or the courts, those kinds of inquiries, right, should be very, very rarely used, right? Um, so, so I think that's maybe just another reason. Um, you know, you've supplied some additional reasons that I that I didn't give, but but an additional reason, right, for for ordinarily just disregarding this, right, from the from from the perspective of sort of proper respect for a coordinate branch of government and also just kind of uh, judicial resource management, right? The idea that you're going to have some, you know, extensive discovery or congressional hearings, if we're talking about Congress, into these internal processes strikes me as totally unworkable, right? A much better rule would be one that just says, uh, subject to a handful of exceptions, just disregard this kind of material. And to the extent that you find out that the president is tweeting these things and then he's calling up a, a, a cabinet official and, in fact, in fact, is affecting policy this way. And so so then the problem, is, of course, is you're using a rule which assumes something which is not happening, that there is an ordinary process and you're ignoring the, the extraordinary. But then you're saying, I guess, I guess one, one response to that would be, well, to the extent that there's some crazy process which is not the ordinary one, that's for Congress to hold hearings over and for people to vote on. Right. And, you know, and, and, and right, Congress has lots of tools right at, at its disposal to check in various ways what happens inside the executive branch. And so I do think those are probably more appropriately used than some kind of extensive judicial inquiry into all this. But it would also sort of depend on how all of that came to light, right? So if we're just talking about sort of leaks from various executive branch officials, right, did, I, I don't see a, a good argument for, for those, you know, empowering courts then to sort of inquire further into internal processes. But, um, but, but, at, but at a certain point, right, these kinds of regularity and good faith presumptions have to be overcome. Um, but yeah, but I, I guess I would say that it's the, the, the sort of threshold showing would have to be pretty significant. Um, and short of that, it's probably for Congress to sort of figure out how to kind of manage these internal executive branch processes, because it has plenty of tools to do that. Right. Yeah, I guess if you, um, you know, think about the, the, the different uh, content you could give to the notion of arbitrariness. Right. And if you think judges, when they're reviewing administrative action, are in part, uh, and, and under the auspices of the APA itself, trying to weed out decisions that are arbitrary for some value of the word arbitrary, that, that uh, a kind of uh, intrusion on a decision-making process from a source uh, that uh, isn't, isn't paying attention to the criteria that Congress has provided and, and indeed is paying attention to criteria that you would have every reason to believe uh, 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 Congress would reject. 
in a particular context. Um, if someone wants to try to figure out how to how to work through an arbitrariness way of thinking about that, that sounds worth doing. Now, I realize this is sort of it may, in some sense, be flying in the teeth of of Catherine Watts's, uh, you know, insights about how can we bring politics into administration in a way that 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 doesn't sort of threaten to bring the house down. But I'm uh, maybe I'm showing that I there's a part of me that's skeptical that that's that that's achievable. Notwithstanding the fact that Chevron says that's one of the reasons why deference is a good idea, right? Is because it encourages a kind of political accountability by letting agencies change as administrations change, right? Yeah. That's that's if that's nothing if not a reference to politics. So I, I kind of get that, but yeah, yeah, and I think she nicely does sort of suggest that, that that if you don't allow this kind of place for politics and the arbitrariness review, right? There there is real tension between you know, State Farm Arbitrariness Review on the one hand and Chevron on the other in ways um, that that there shouldn't be, right? Those two, the sort of the basic values behind the two should, you think, align. Um, but I mean, maybe there's just a difference between, you know, there's just sort of proper and improper use of politics, right? So there's just kind of a distinction there, which is that sort of the selection between a number of permissible kind of policy objectives, right, that Congress intends to leave space for, and you know we hear about that more in the Chevron cases than arbitrary and capricious cases, but um, but presumably if Congress means to leave the space, right, it, it means to leave the space, and sort of choosing among those permissible options under either sort of type of review should be totally fine. Um, but there's a kind of improper political influence, and I don't think that Catherine's piece, like that I recall, really identifies what that might be, although although she might. Um, but but you know. I think that's a tricky line for courts to draw, but maybe it would be worth trying to struggle through. Yeah, because in the limit, you know, if, if, and it, again, it seems to me to go to, are there criteria that uh, if we're imagining the creation of an agency, those setting out of some criteria about how they're supposed to decide the things that have been uh, put in their hands to decide, um, you know, in the limit, would I think we'd all agree that if, if you know, uh, if a president calls an agency head and says, look, I, you know, I want you to do this uh, and I want you to do it because you know, last night at this fundraiser, this guy wrote me a really huge check and it was predicated on the notion that <laughs> that I would tell you to do this. And so I'm telling you to do it. Right. Like that's not that, that's beyond the pale, uh, I would think, on anyone's understanding of the kind of control a president should have over administration because um, because that's a bloody crime. So it can't it can't countenance that. Uh, and so to me, it seems the question is, OK, how far away from that do you need to get? before you get to to the hard case. Yeah. And there are a lot of hard yeah. So so I I need a political win and you know, sort of repealing this regulation, even though I think it does some, you know, more more good than harm, will give me that political win. You know, where where on what what side of the line does that fall on, right? So if 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 kind of political fortunes are always something that the president is concerned about, uh, you know, I think part of Catherine's point and, and the others who've sort of advocated this kind of acknowledgement of the role of politics is that it incentivizes kind of more candid evaluations of motivations than and and more candid maybe exchanges within the executive branch than sort of a, a constant requirement that everything be cloaked in sort of the language of, um, uh, you know, sort of expertise, bureaucratic expertise, right, as opposed to sort of policy or politics. And yeah. and that there may be some value in opening up space for for more frankly kind of politically inflected discussions. But but I do think it's a really hard line. Yeah, especially these days. It's just, you know, you get the, I get the sense reading this of how things change, uh, you know, culturally, politically, so radically. And, and where, you know, there may be periods of kind of 
punctuation, but a lot of it is just a slow change. And, and when you're in it, you don't see, I, I feel the, I say the minute I say that, I feel like everybody realizes that beginning in November, we entered a very different time in terms of presidential rhetoric and how we feel about it and our kind of initial intuitions about, about how to treat it. I feel like every, you know, you're looking at me, you agree, Joe? I mean, it's, it's I, I do. I, I think it's, um, you know, I, I think, and there's, there's a lot of different ways to say it. Um, some of which sound more germane than others, I suppose. I mean, it, it, there have been, for ex- just as an example, right. Of, uh, you know, some, some of our presidents have had legal training. I think most probably have not. Um, and yet <laughs> until very recently, um, most of them managed to act as if they were not involved in some form of being an extremist, right, to say it in the least charged way I can say, (laughs) which is, I suppose, just a way to say you can't blame it on not having legal training, right? Because I think most presidents didn't. Uh, You know, Nixon did. um, uh, Many have. I wonder how many. uh, You think it's less than half? Oh, sure. Uh, What do you think, Kate? What's your guess? I I think less than half, but I do think the fact that we've had um, uh, you know, sort of these these two, you know, really legally trained, but both Clinton and Obama in the last 20 years of presidents, right, makes it feel like there have been more lawyer presidents right. than uh, historically. But I do think the number is less than half, although but, I don't yeah, have Yeah, the Bushes, no. Reagan, no. Um, yeah. uh, uh, Nixon, yes. Ford, I think, yes. Lincoln, yeah. yes. Yeah. So it's all Ford, right. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so so you, you, can, you can chalk it up to um, all kinds of things. Or, uh, or military experience, which is similar, right? This idea of regular order, mm, right? So I think lawyers right. plus military experience, like yeah, You're getting a lot and, more and now. to me, it just seems like the real the the thing I've the things I've been let me put it this way the things I've been thinking about a lot more over the last calendar year um, have to do with uh, sort of rule of law stuff, due process stuff, um, the phrase you just use, regular order, right? right. Um, that that uh, when uh, when people with enormous power are acting in not not perfectly orderly ways because their, their perfection doesn't exist. But but when people with enormous power are are acting in a sort of regularized ways that suggest that they accept the value of regularity itself right. into their regular life, right? Um, that then you can spend a lot more time feeling more loose and free about things you might be willing to do in a discretionary sense that depart from that regularity. Because you, you believe in the sincerity of their adoption of this complicated rule of recognition, if you like, of their right. powers, right? But, but when instead the people with power are sort of doing their best imitation of, um, Here we you go. know, Here the, we go. I the can't joker, <laughs> um, then, then you suddenly regularity and the value of, of regularity and and the acceptance of it into your regular affairs looms much larger, right? Um, and so that's the kind of that's how I feel. If I had to, if I had to sum up in one thing, like what 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 switch got thrown? And for me, the switch that got thrown, it would seem, in uh, looking at the last year of my own thoughts and and concerns, um, the switch that got thrown is a due process switch, a regularism switch, um, and and so. Finding ways to emphasize and 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 to bring it back to the paper, you know, finding ways to at least as as parts of it struck me, finding ways to emphasize things like, yeah, you know, the J the DOJ's considered position in litigation ought to have an enormous role to play in how a court processes that litigation. 
If you care about getting it right, where part of what getting right means is really internalizing regularity and due process, then getting distracted by some tweet is actually not too smart or some speech in response to a heckler, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I bet a year ago I wouldn't have thought it as clearly as I just said it. Well, let me. maybe this is a good place to kind of wind up, um, and unless, Kate, there's more to say that we just have to get out. But I was going to ask you, Kate, like, because I'm just feeling like if I had written a paper like this, first of all, I'd pat myself on the back because it's really good. It's really good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but but I would also be wondering, like, week to week, would I still believe in what I wrote in the paper? You know what I mean? Like, like, have you found yourself uncomfortable? Like one week you feel this way, the next week you feel that? Or, or do you feel pretty committed to the... To the, to the idea of how to treat presidential speech regardless it's funny, of what's It's funny. Happening. I would have asked if you, she believed it even more. Well, I, I, that, has it changed? Right. That's, all, that's my only question. Yeah. It's like, as, do, do you find it a very dynamic experience? Like when I look back at my work, usually I'm disappointed. <laughs> but when I look back at my work, I, I usually think <laughs> yeah, I should have done that better. But, but at least it, it feels stable, right? But that's because I'm not yeah. writing about something like this. And I, I, I imagine it must be a somewhat more dynamic experience with the news unfolding and things changing so rapidly to, to think about a work like this. I don't, am I off base or how, how do you think about it? You know, you know, I wrote, I, I wrote a draft of it over the summer of 2016 in the early fall of 2016. And so I had written most of it in the, the very end of the Obama administration. And like everybody else did not think um, Donald Trump would be the next president. And so after the election, I was terrified to look at it for a few weeks because I was like, I am not, I'm not sure any of this is going to hold. And also like, I don't, I, it's really, I have a background. I worked in the Obama White House. So I, I do have a background in politics, but it's really important to me that academic work, right. Be really distinct from sort of the work of, the, you know, political hacks in, in the White House. Right. So I, I I was just really scared to revisit it. And when I did, just a few weeks later, um, was like, oh, I basically agree with this, actually. And I think and, and, and it was this really like amazing kind of surprise. So I, I actually don't think I think that it, it that it does hopefully set forth some general principles that I think are that give the, 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 the basic idea, give presidents the speed, the, the sort of the, the space to uh, opine kind of broadly. Right. That's, you know, kind of silencing presidents is actually not a great thing. Uh, for the country generally, um, uh, but also, right, give courts places, you know, so, so to allow them to do that, right, sort of keep internal processes, um, uh, sort of, so, so for all the reasons I thought that it was inappropriate for the uh, district court, right, in the Texas litigation to rely on the president's statements. And in, in a lot of other contexts, I, I think that, that discounting some ill-considered statements by President Trump um, is actually totally appropriate as as well. So I, so I actually think that for the most part, right, it, it does hold up. Um, uh, but that was a little bit before. So a year in, you know, a lot of the predicates about inter- about the way internal government processes run. Right. I do think there has been have been somewhat my uh, my, my my faith in all of that has been somewhat shaken. So so I so, you know, it, it, I think and I think I said this somewhere sort of in a late revision to the paper, I sort of inserted something that said yeah. I think it was particularly because I have an exception for. Um, the output of kind of the national security and foreign policy processes that have always been just far more rigorous or always, I don't know, in the last few decades have always been far more rigorous than the kind of domestic policy crafting process uh, in, in, in the White House and, you know, most or all White Houses. And so there's just a different, uh, uh, you can sort of put a different stock in the things that appear in presidential statements on foreign policy matters. And the world puts a lot of stock in them. So there are a handful of, of reasons to treat all of those kinds of materials differently uh, than other kinds of presidential statements. And I'm just not sure that totally holds anymore. Um, so that's the one place that I'm not, that if in fact the sort of foreign policy development process um, is sort of this kind of ad hoc chaos um, uh, that sometimes appears to be in this administration. So maybe that recommendation actually needs to shift. Although, on the other hand, the fact that that reliance, 
you know, outside of the United States is going to happen regardless. Maybe that's a reason that judicial reliance is, is more appropriate there too. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, but I do think there are, I mean, the sort of bigger questions there, there, this president has obviously transformed the presidency for the period that he's in it. Right. I think that the, the harder question is how much staying power some of or any of that will have, right? Jack Goldsmith had this really good piece that was titled something like, Will Trump Destroy the Presidency? Like a couple of months ago in yeah. the Atlantic. And and I mean, I think he, he, he basically says, in no, he won't. And in some ways, some of these sort of norm uh, violations have redounded to his benefit, but for the most part, they haven't. And so future presidents are actually not going to follow in his footsteps. Um, at least that's sort of his take one year in. So it's, you know, it's really, I think, I think it's not hard from sitting sort of inside it to feel as though things are quite different right now. But I do think the hard question is whether that's temporary or permanent. And that, and that I don't feel like I have a good sense of yet. Yeah. It's just something none of us, I, th- I don't think any of us alive have been through anything comparable in terms of the, yeah. the, the, the avulsion of the institutions that about which we're writing. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Definitely. Thank you, Kate. This was, yeah. Thank a you. Great this is amazing. And great talk. Really fun talking to you guys. Thank you so much for having me.